Let's do some stretching. Let's get into this this morning, right? All right. Open up your book to, open up your Bible to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in chapter 1. We are doing a study or a, uh, a, seri a sermon series through the book of Colossians. If you will allow me, we're going to pray just one more time. Um, not for any other reason that I feel I need it right now. So let's pray. Jesus, your word is good. And I thank you that you've called us here this morning, uh, me to preach and your people to hear. But Lord, without your Holy Spirit, there's no increase. We could have transference of knowledge and that would be fine, but but that won't bring transformation. And for, for us, Lord, who have come out this morning and we've we've braved this minus 14 degree weather, um, we've come out here not for good information or you know pithy sayings. We've come out to be changed by and challenged by the God of all creation. And so, Father, we don't come in obstinance and we don't come belligerently. We come to you humbly asking for this in the name of your son, Jesus, that through the book of Colossians and through your messenger, Paul, and through the power of your Holy Spirit, we might be changed to be more like you. We love you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So normally what we would do in a sermon series um, or a Bible study is we would kind of go verse by verse and pick things out and and uh, that's great. That's uh, we'll end up doing that throughout the uh, study or the the series on Colossians. But I find that here in the beginning of this first chapter, what we're going to focus on more um, is the themes or or what Paul is saying to the church, and we're going to highlight those. So it might ne not necessarily look at one particular verse or group of verses. We're going to look at what Paul is saying overall. Um. This epistle was written because there was a problem. All, if not uh, most, if not all, of the epistles were written because there was problems within the church. There are a lot of problems within the church today. Um, this is not just problems they had. This is problems we have. When we start to disassociate ourselves from the people and the culture and the time and the place of those who lived the New Testament and the Old Testament, we miss the fact that. We are all connected by the same human nature, and we all go through the same problems. Though they might come in different flavors or flares, human nature is still human nature. Sin is still sin, and we still need Jesus. And I believe that's why, uh, I believe it's the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is the same today, uh, yesterday, today, and forever. There's no need for him to change, uh, A, because he's eternal, but B, because we never change. Human nature is still saved by the same sacrifice of Jesus. The same blood that was shed on the cross is the same blood that we all need to be saved. So with that in mind, when we read the book of Colossians, one of the things we should be uh, focused on, maybe not directly, I mean our main focus is Jesus, but what was, what was limited, limiting the Colossians from following Jesus? Ultimately, even in gentleness, what Paul is doing is he's declaring war. He is throwing down the gauntlet, much like he, he did in the rest of his epistles. We went through the book of Galatians. It was the same. There was heresy in the church that needed to be rooted out, taken out, and corrected. Um, the, three, the big three enemies of the church at this time, at the, of the writing of the book of Colossians, pretty much the same as it is today. Not much has changed. Judaism. Now, we, we love Jewish people. We love the Jewish culture. Um, Jesus is Jewish. I mean, we, we, uh, we have nothing against any of that. However, 
when we begin to exalt Judaism above the following of Christ, we usually end up in error to the point where churches can't decide which days to worship on, whether or not you should uh, have uh, festival worships, you know, new moons and Sabbaths and, and Passover and things like that. And those begin to supersede the commands of Christ. And what you have here in, in this church in Colossae is people saying, you know, uh, this, this plan with Jesus is good, but you also need things like circumcision. You need things like worshiping on the Sabbath. You need to celebrate the different Jewish festivals. Basically, to become a better Christian, you've got to become a Jew. And we don't have any kind of command from the Lord, who was every bit God, but every bit a Jewish man. We don't have any command from him to do that. Um, so this, this mindset had infiltrated the church in Colossae. It was also infiltrated by, and we'll look at these later on in the series. Uh, today, I just want to highlight them for a moment. Pagan occultism. Paganism is a very hard word to define. Even amongst pagans, each pagan seems to have their own different view about what it means. Um, from the Christian point of view, it's literally the worship of false spirits or, or, or evil spirits. But on the pagan side of the line, it would be something like worshiping nature, looking for the divine in everything, and and uh, mixing that with mystery found through the occult, and it turns into this secret knowledge that is outside of uh, the Bible. And so you had Judaism, which a lot of the Jewish folks who were in the church would be familiar with, pagan occultism, that, there's your Greeks and your, uh, you know, your Romans and things like that. Um, and then lastly, you have, so you have pagan occultism, Judaism, and um, my gosh, what a morning we're having. Gnosticism. Gosh, I could not think of that word. So, Gnosticism, uh, uh, pagan occultism, and Judaism. Gnosticism is much like the pagan occultism. What it, Gnosticism basically is, uh, one of the, the tenets of their belief is that Jesus was not fully man and fully God. Uh, they'll believe that he survived the cross because he was spirit only. That all flesh is inherently evil, and we believe that too. Um, but for us who would seek to be sanctified of that evil flesh, uh, the Gnostics would say, you know, revel in it. If flesh is evil and flesh is going to be destroyed, then, then seek all forms of pleasure. That to know Jesus, it's not about uh, reading his word and becoming a disciple. It's about having secret knowledge revealed to you. Gnosticism, uh, literally translated, is like in the know. You know, people who were higher up in Gnosticism, well, they were special elect people who, who could only have these things revealed to them. And if you didn't know, well, you're just farther down in the ladder. And maybe someday if you're chosen, you'll, you'll come up the ranks. But right now we're just going to look down on you in pity and we'll have our little secret meetings and we'll have our secret knowledge that we'll keep amongst ourselves. Now, if three people came in, you had Mr. Pagan Occultism, Mr. Gnosticism, and Mr. Judaism walk in the church this morning and double our attendance. Um, yeah, that was funny. Um, uh, if they came in and said, here, we're going to add this to your religion today, most of us, if not all of us, would say, no, sir, we're not going to do that because that is wrong. We have the Bible. We have Jesus. That is our religion. 
That's all the religion we need. We are called to be servants and disciples and to love one another and to love those who are unlovable and to serve those who can do nothing for us. And, and that's what we're called to do, to exalt the name of Jesus. We'd, we'd all pretty much do that. We'd have some script or something we would just rattle off and we'd be right. Um, but heresy rarely comes in in that way. Heresy comes in through subtle variations, subtle changes, slight skewed vision or doctrine, and that slowly begins to evolve into heresy and false doctrine. To the point where this is probably some five to ten years after the start of this church, and now it's become a problem. It was probably introduced within the first couple of years of the church, and it just snowballed. And then eventually, oh, you have a church that's divided and and jesus is not being exalted it's about secret knowledge and holding festivals and legalisms and so paul's got to write a letter and so as we look at our own lives i mean we could point our fingers at the church all day long but we have to look at ourselves where have we allowed heresy to exist now we didn't have somebody come to us and say hey Follow this heretical view. What happened was somewhere along the line, we probably read something or heard something and didn't do our due diligence to back it up and to research it. And we just adopted it as, the, as proper theology, and it became the truth to us. Now, it's not the truth, but it became the truth to us. I read a, an, uh, an article in the New York Times this morning. It was about a young lady um, who was diagnosed with stage 4 uh, cancer. Um, young lady, probably in her 30s, uh, loves her job. She's a journalist for New York Times. That's got to be a pretty good gig. Um, married, a couple of kids, loving life, but now she's been given a death sentence. The irony of this is that one of the things that fascinates her, her being a Christian, uh, marrying a Mennonite man from Canada, um, she basically went on tour, if you will, through these prosperity churches throughout our country, interviewing uh, the pastors and the people and learning about this uh, variation, uh, and let's use that word very generously, of, of Christianity um, to her herself be suffering and now, now be looked upon as though not having enough faith. Now, her, this was not her faith. She, was, she marveled at it the same way you would look at it. At a, at a car wreck and say, I, you know, I can't look away. It's just, it's fascinating because of, uh, of the catastrophe behind it. And as I read that, I was reminded that, you know, that, that version of the gospel, which isn't a version of the gospel at all, didn't start by somebody coming in and saying, hey, we want to change the gospel. It started with a man saying, you know what, I'm really interested in positive thinking and mysticism and, 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 the 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 ability to you know speak things uh, metaphysically and I want to introduce that to Pentecostalism, which is already you know like uh, Christianity on you know on Ritalin or something. It's like super ultra Christianity, and so you have all this excitement and people who now feel that they can control their destiny and can be rich if they want to and healthy when they're sick and and and, and it started with a simple a simple skewing and adding to the gospel. As we read through this first couple of verses and, and, and first chunk of scripture, Paul is probably a lot more gentle than I'm being right now. Um, in de declaring war, he is still being very gentle with the people. He starts off by 
by reminding them that they're saints and that they're faithful. And he's going to talk about how how he's so he's so uh, him and him and his co-workers they are faithful to remember the Colossian church in their prayers. Let's read the first uh, ten or twelve verses or so, and then we'll uh, we'll go on with the message. Uh, verse one and two, which we went over last week, says Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world is being is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God uh, in truth, just as you learned it from uh, Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father God, we have read your word. And it will take a miracle of the Holy Spirit for us to not just know what it says, but to, to transfer it into our lives where we live it out. And so, Father, I'm praying now that your word would be exactly what it is, power and truth and light in a dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Paul reminds the church, look, this is what's happening with the gospel. It's going out, it's bearing fruit, it's changing lives, and that's what we want to see in your church. That's what we want to see in Colossae. That's what we want to see in the Colossian people. People coming in, being changed by the gospel, going out, sharing the gospel, becoming disciple makers, and then ultimately having that repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And so when we look around the church, and we don't have to look far, we can look at our own church, our own community, when we see people coming in, but we're not seeing them changed, we have to find out what is causing that. Is it, is it apathy? It could be apathy. I think personally, our own little community here that we uh, exist in, I think our two biggest uh, adversaries are apathy and Catholicism. Now, it's very easy to throw the Catholics under a bus, and I don't mean to do that. But these two put together breed a, a super apathy, if you will. When there's no challenge to change, when, when it's all about ritual, and when it's all about just following what your, your parents and your parents' parents have done, and, and life outside of Sunday morning, that couple of hours, is all mine, and I do with it what I want, you're not going to see a lot of change. And so we go out and we preach a gospel about change to a bunch of people who don't want to hear about change, who don't want to change their life or their lifestyle. It's not great, but it's not bad either. They're not making a lot of money, but they're not poor. And they don't have the best car, but they have a good car. And they don't have uh, this, but they have something. You know, They don't have a boat, but they have a jet ski. They don't have 
you know, uh, uh, all the money in the world, but man, they get to go on vacation and stuff. So we meet and 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 converse with people who tend to be, uh, unbeknownst to themselves, apathetic. They just don't care, and that's a really hard place to minister to. Um, it's not impossible. We on this side of the line have to say, okay, that's our challenge. How are we going to adapt? What does the Lord want us to say and to do to penetrate that wall? For Paul and the and the sin that has sort of infiltrated the church in Colossae, it was not so much pointing out why the people were wrong for what they were doing. I mean, who will call them out later for things like worshiping angels? and 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 holding up legalisms rather than a relationship with Jesus. He'll point that out. I don't think he necessarily names any names, and it's not my general practice to come up here and give you a laundry list of people that you should avoid. If we get in a personal conversation and you say, well, I really like this guy, and I, I'll say something like, well, let me give you this to consider, uh, you know, after I kind of, uh, the gag reflex goes away, I will tell you, okay, this is why I don't, believe this person or this ministry or this group and you know just take that for what it's worth and if you if you agree with me then we start making fun of them and it gets really ungodly really fast um <laughs> but for the most part i'll do my best to be uh like hey you know yeah here's my point of view and here's what i've seen and here's what i've heard and here's what i know i try not to base my opinions on what i've heard you know, I want to go to the source. I want to hear this person preach. I want to read their book. I want to know what they're actually saying on their website, not just what some person heard some person say. They heard some person say something else. And so you get to, you know, the root of it and say, okay, this is their belief. This is their theology. This is how they think Jesus works, and it's counter to the word of God. And so I don't trust them as a minister of the gospel. And that's what it boils down to. Um, Paul comes in, and he begins to remind them of who Jesus is. The main theme of Colossians is the preeminence of Christ. That he is not just he's not just God, but he's before all things. There's this phrase in in the book of Revelation that gets repeated. John uses it, God uses it of himself that he is the one who was and is and is to come. It's not just that Jesus was born in a, in a manger some 2,000 years ago and then died for our sins is that Jesus has existed always. He is He's eternal. He's n more than just in this moment. He is before all of the things in regards to time. For me, that's really hard to, to imagine because everything before this moment is, is slowly becoming a blur and I don't know anything about the future. I only exist in this moment. But somehow, somehow Jesus has always existed outside of that limitation. And not only that, he's the firstborn of all creation, the Bible says. He was the first fruits of sacrifice that, that we follow up into, that he was given first before anything else was, was given, that before we ever loved him, he loved us. Before we ever asked for forgiveness, he died for our sins. He's, he's first in all things. He is before all things. And so that knowledge is good for Bible trivia, but how does that translate into changing lives? If Jesus is before all things, if he is preeminent, if he is um, beyond our limitations, that means our hope in him will not be limited. 
That means that today, the trials you are going through, somehow, some way, they work out within the will of God. Think about it like this. You read through, I believe it's Exodus 20, when, when the, uh, the, the, commands are, the commandments are being given. What's one of the commandments? Thou shalt not murder, right? Okay, so we know that. And as far as I know, none of us are guilty of that in that sense. Maybe we've hated our brother and we're, we're guilty in that way. Um, if Jesus meant literal brothers, I could see how sometimes you have some feeling towards your actual brother or sister. That works out like that. But my point is this. You see God, his, the murdering of his son still worked out for the will that he had for us. He's still God and Lord over that which is contrary to his word. Do you see how what you're going through now, it might be circumstance. It might be your bad choice. It might be an all-on assault from the enemy. Either way, you come out the other end stronger. You come out the other end bigger, more like Jesus, refined, knowing more about God than in any other way you could, closer to Jesus than you could ever get in a Bible study. God uses these things to draw you closer to him. In the moment, it hurts. It is painful. It is arduous. It leads to sleepless nights. It leads to things like stress. It leads to things that deteriorate your health. But you can know this because God is, is and was and is to come. He's before all things. That all the things that are working right now are working for your good. And even to the point where Paul in the book of Romans through the Holy Spirit says that these things that are working right now are all for our good. So it's not just about knowing that Jesus is preeminent. It's about the fact that because he is the first amongst everything, that that is where our hope rests. Hope is, to quote Shawshank Redemption, a very dangerous thing, right? That was the line from the movies, one of my favorite movies. Um, the idea of hope, when you have hope in something, it, it, it allows you to do things you wouldn't normally do. It, it takes you from a place where you want to just stay home. It, 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 hope in Jesus changes you to where you'll go across the world to preach the gospel. You'll become a missionary to people that you've never met. You'll go across the street to your neighbor and bring them food just because you want to show them Jesus. You will go to a Bible study when it's, when it's negative degrees outside. Hope changes things. But our hope must be anchored in more than just a potential outcome. Our hope must be anchored in Jesus. And so Paul Rather than saying, hey, here's all the things you're doing wrong, he'll get to that. He starts off by saying, hey, this is Jesus. Now, Paul started this church with a man named Epaphras. Epaphras is, is with him now. We'll get to the end of the book, and he'll say, you know, hey, Epaphras says hi. He's amongst you guys. It's believed traditionally that he was the pastor of that church. Um, I love that no matter where Paul went, and currently as he's writing this letter, he's in jail, um, he never just left a church and then turned away from it. It was always a part of him. It was always something that he had a vested interest in. He couldn't just walk away and say, well, this is your church now. He, he, he heard about the church. He heard what was going on, and he couldn't stay silent. He had to say something. 
because he knew that the life that they were pursuing was not a life found in Jesus. Church, if I come to you in correction, or if I come to you and say, look, this is why your theology is wrong, or this is where you went askew, or this is why I don't listen to this person or this ministry, it's not because I'm lording over you my authority. It's not because I know more than you. It's because ultimately, I'm not your referee. You know, I don't have a whistle and a striped shirt, like, you know, pulling up a yellow card, don't go any further in that ministry. You know, I'm your, I'm your pastor, I'm your shepherd. It's like, hey, see that over there? That's thorn and brambles, and there's poisonous fruit there don't eat that but ultimately you're going to go there whether you want to or not but i just want to make sure that you know that's what happens when you go there see all those sheep over there with the scars and you see the ones that are still stuck in there they thought they could get through it too and they were wrong come over here psalm 23 still water green grass you know and and and, and come eat this instead come to jesus He's the still water. He's the green grass. He is enough for you. But over here they say I get a pony. You don't need a pony. Come over here and the green grass and the still water. Come back to the one who loves you above all things. Who loves you more than you can love yourself. Who has a vested interest in you and doesn't just watch you wander off but goes after you like the one lost sheep out of the hundred. Now, when it comes to heresy, when it comes to heretical views that, you know, started off very simple and then all of a sudden it escalates and, and 5, 10, 20 years later you're believing stuff and you're like, where did I come up with that? Who taught me that? Why do I believe or follow that? It's going to take more than just you. And this is a good thing. Our sermon today was titled, We're in this together. Um, as much as, you know, 19... 70s Brady Bunch, that sounds, you know. Um, the truth is we're called together to help each other in, in not just uh, following, but in, in serving and leading one another. You know, we come together, hey, I read this book, and, you know, what do you know about this guy, or what do you know about this ministry, what do you know about th this and that, and what, what are they like, and, you know, especially, this is especially um, essential when it comes to those who are in generations beyond me nice way of me saying people who are older we need your wisdom you've seen so much more than us you know um you've you've been through things like uh the speeches of dr martin luther king and you've and you've seen the civil rights movement and you've seen uh the sexual revolution take off and you've seen uh the the false ministries of the 1980s and tele uh, televangelism and things like that where like for me i was like I was just still watching Transformers at that time. But you've seen so many things. You need to share your wisdom with us. We need you, and you need us. We need this. We're in this together. And so we're not called to be you know, spiritual witch hunters, go around and crucify or burn at the stake every heretic we can find. But we are supposed to help out each other and say, hey, you know what, let's – Let's go here. Let's look at this. Let's look at, you know, that person's written this book now, but let, here's some other things they have said, and let's weigh all the evidence together, you know. Let's have conversations that get heated, but ultimately we see each other's point of view and, and allow ourselves to be humble enough to go, you know what, there may be something to that. One of the things that this will do, and we hate this, is this will destroy false idols, false idols in our life. If you want to know what is a false idol in your life, 
Just have a conversation with somebody, and as soon as they touch it or tip it or talk against it, you'll know it's a false idol because you will fight tooth and nail to protect it. Now, there are good things to fight to protect family and friends and your church. Um, those are good things, but when idols are there and somebody says, hey, that thing's not right, and you lose your mind, that could be a red flag. Let me give you a good example. I uh, read a blog this week. Read too many blogs this week. Let's just get that right out there. Read a blog this week. And it was the same argument I've heard ever since I got into the ministry. Pastors should wear suits. I hate this argument. I don't know if you can tell. I don't like this argument. And it was it was probably the most progressive blog I'd ever heard about the subject, but ultimately it came down to pastors should wear a suit and tie, and if they do anything other than that they're shortchanging the people. And instantly, I got on my soapbox in my head. Let me tell you why you don't have to wear a suit. Jesus didn't wear a suit. I'm thinking all these weird thoughts, and I'm like, I'm just going to fight this guy uh, on the Facebook. <laughs> Not in real life. That was never going to happen. And so... I did what I thought was the best thing I could do. I talked to my wife about it. And her first words were, because Jesus wore a suit, right? And I was like, all right, we're on the same page. This is awesome. But I realized, okay, if I stand up on my soapbox and say, no, not suit and tie, but the way that I dress, I'm doing the same thing he's doing. I'm, I'm just simply the polar opposite of that. And so the truth of it is, is if your appearance supersedes what we're doing here at the church, teaching and preaching and serving, then we're in a big mess. To think that how pastors dress is the biggest problem the church is facing right now, I think is very naive. I think that for me, it revealed to me something that could be an idol potentially, and I had to be very careful and say, you know what? I can't let that stand. If that's there, i got to wear a suit just to combat the idol. Obviously, I didn't wear the suit um, because it doesn't fit. Um, I have one, and I will wear it someday as soon as that Pilates kicks in. Um, but my point is this. Just being, just being the opposite of what you think is, is right or wrong um, ultimately shows where your idols kind of lay. You know, I think that church should be on this certain day. Well, why? See, all these things, the way you dress and the type of, it's the music. You know, the, again, with the music, we got to hear about the music. You know, the style of music and which era you sing it from. You know, God, some of the hymns that are being sung and that are revered today were despised when they were written. You know, youth, you know how I'm just too young for some people. I don't know how to combat that. I read a, I, you know the song, Come Thou Fount? The guy who wrote it was 22 years old when he wrote it. There's a lot of 22-year-olds. They can't get off the couch today, but not all 22-year-olds. Some 22-year-olds know Jesus and want to worship him and write songs and Bible studies and, and sermons that, that reflect that, just like 70-year-old men do. It's it, These things, as they get in front of us, they block us from a relationship with Jesus. And we start to paint 
Christianity according to our numbers rather than according to his will. This is how it all started in, in Colossae. Hey, I loved your sermon today. Have you ever have you ever thought about the uh uh the what what's the one with the tents? Sukoth? The Sukoth festival? You ever heard about that? No. Oh, it's really great. We go out to into the wilderness for a week and and it really draws you closer to the Lord. Oh, really? Well, we should do that. Next thing you know, 20 years later, if you're not celebrating Sukkoth or Sukkoth or whatever it is, you're a blasphemer and you're a heretic and you're not saved. Wow. I don't remember reading that in the Word, but okay. You know, you look you look really nice. You look even nicer if your shirt had a collar. Oh, really? The next thing you know, you're wearing some $1,000 suit. You don't even know why you're wearing it. But it just escalates. It'd be really nice if you had, you know, service at this time or service at that time, or, you know, we went through this book or we went through that book, or if you emphasize this more, emphasize that more. It's not that those things are wrong. It's that when they get elevated to being God things, that's when we get into trouble. There are things that we call closed-handed issues. We we just can't deviate from them. The virgin birth of Jesus, His sacrifice on the cross, His atonement and, and cleansing. Uh, through the his shedding of his blood for our sins, his uh, death, burial, and resurrection, him being the Son of God, being the second person of the Trinity, uh, the Bible being in, being inerrant, these are things that we don't deviate on. But when the Bible is silent or less than crystal clear about a certain subject, then we have to proceed with grace with one another. I see this most frequently in, in the study of the rapture. You know, you have your, your pre-trib and your mid-trib and your post-trib and your tri-trib and your – that's a joke because tri-tip is a thing. But you have all these people. There's, there's, no, there's no, uh, no rapture, you know, and you have groups that form and then you have division. And rather than people just celebrating the fact that, hey, we come to different conclusions based on scripture, um, we have – because every one of them has got scripture. Every one of them's got a verse or a book or something that they bank this on and say this is how it's going to happen, you know. But it's less than clear. We have to have grace for one another. I think service should be, you know, Sabbath is Friday afternoon to Sunday or to Saturday afternoon, and that's when you should be resting. And you shouldn't be doing any work. Well, some of us have jobs, and and I may not be able to Sabbath right in between that 24-hour period, but but maybe I can Sabbath this day. Maybe I can rest at this time. Maybe maybe I can enjoy my liberty or express my liberty or or, or be in that um, as long as I don't offend you or or cause you to stumble into sin. Not offend you. You can be offended all day long, but stumbling into sin. I mean, I'll stop there. But but you got to realize that we're gonna have we need to have grace for one another in this. Open-handed issues we can differ on. Well, I think we should dress this way. Good. Then dress that way. I think pastors should wear a suit. I think you should wear a suit. You wear the suit. You like the suit? You wear the suit. I'm going to wear my hoodie because it's comfortable, and it was really cold today, and it really worked out to have two jackets on. Well, I don't think pastors should say that. Well, you're, I'm a pastor. You're not. I, I, think my, my, I think my knowledge of what a pastor should say is a little higher, but that's getting kind of hoity-toity. Let's just, let's just – instead of looking at that, instead of going down that road – 
let's have grace for one another and say, hey, you know what? We're different. Our kindergarten teachers were right. We're all snowflakes. We're all different. And we all have, you know, as long as we're not in sin, and that's sort of the big key. Now, if you cross the line into sin, um, you have you have broken down or tore down one of those close-handed issues, well, then we've got to talk. But, you know, somebody comes in and say, Pastor, you know, I really feel comfortable um, in jeans and a T-shirt coming to church. Is that okay? Yeah, that's okay. You know? One of the big ones, and I'm probably I probably stepped on all the toes, so I'll just keep stepping. Wearing a hat in church, I had a hat ripped off my head in church once. I was like, "Where is this coming from?" Now I get it. At a certain day and time, like if you wore a hat indoors, it was on par, not exactly the same, but uh, it was like you're a human trafficker. Like you wear a hat, you sell people on the black market. Like not that much different. So if you wear a hat indoors, you know, God can't – your spirit gets blocked between you and God or something. I don't know what it is, but I didn't grow up in that. So me wearing a hat to church, I was just – I just didn't want to comb my hair that day. A hat on. It's one of the joys of being a dude. You do that. Wow, I, I didn't know this was a thing. And and now, like, you, if you come in with a hat on your head, I'm cool with that. I don't care. Are you going to love Jesus? That's what I care about. See, now, if you came in and said, I have to wear a hat to love Jesus better, well, now, now you're just being silly. But I'm going to wear a hat because I like my hat, and I'm going to wear a hat today. Cool. i seen your head. Wear a hat. That's cool. Are you going to love Jesus? Are you going to serve Jesus? Is it going to change if you get the hat taken away? See, that's the thing. If you wear the hat, you're like, yeah, I love Jesus. And the hat gets taken away, and you're like, yeah, I love Jesus. The hat's not an idol. Somebody takes off the hat, and you're like, oh, they took my hat. They're a bunch of Pharisees, legalists, and give back my hat. Like, okay, now, now the hat's a problem. This all sounds really silly, but this is how these things escalate. They start with these slight variations of the gospel message of Jesus that you are so dearly loved that God would send his only begotten son to die in your place for your sins, that he would more than just cleanse you, he would conquer death so that you could find victory in him uh, through your sin or, or in spite of your sin, that this message gets so messed up that we, we get confused and turned around and we're not, we're not following the gospel anymore. We're not making disciples. We're just really cleaned up bad people. And so we go back to the beginning, realizing that we're in this together and we need to pray for one another. We need to, to be in prayer that the things that I think, based on my opinions and feelings, don't cause you to stumble. The things that you believe don't get lifted up so high that they supersede the gospel message. I think that you know Jesus is the Son of God, that life is you know forgiveness of sin is only found through him. No one knows the Father except through him. And you have to have church on Saturday. Like now you've now you've deviated, you've changed the gospel. I think that Jesus is the risen Son of God, and if you don't think positively, He's not going to give you the things that you want. That's a deviation of the gospel. That's a tainting and a changing, and, a, and, and it's just like taking that 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 pottery that you're working on and just crushing it instead of instead of having it molded into completion. And so we have to ask ourselves, and this is 
This is my favorite part of church. This is my favorite part of the sermon. This is the part that when I'm at home and I'm preparing, no matter what sermon it is, this is the part where I am most excited, yet I know has the potential to be the most ignored part of the service. And that is the part where you are challenged to look at your life, to take stock in who you are and what you believe, and start asking yourself really hard questions. Why do I pray the way that I pray? Why do I say Father 900 times when I pray? Why do I do that? Did I see somebody else do it? Is it, is it something I really say or is it something I say in between words that are prayers? Now why, do I pray, why do I pray kneeling? Now why do I talk to God at certain times and not at other times? Why can I black him out when I'm getting ready to sin, but yet once I sin and the conviction comes, I can't avoid him? Where am I compromising my faith? Where am I listening to or reading or, or following a teaching that deviates from the gospel? Many times we, we, our life is like that hose that's been kinked because somewhere we adopted some teaching that was more than just an open-handed issue. It was something that came against the closed-handed issues. Prime example. One of the tenets of prosperity theology is that you must speak a certain thing for it to manifest in your life. Now, that's, that's not biblical. It's nothing that Jesus taught us to do. There are things that Jesus said and did, and the Pharisees did the contrary of it. But yet, there are so many Christians who take that and say, yes, that's what the Word says. Because they themselves don't go back to the due diligence to study. Because you know what studying does sometimes? It causes you to have to be humili uh, not humiliated, to be humble, to have humility. At some point you have to say, you know what, I read this verse here, this little tiny chunk, but then when I read it in context, I realized that what Jesus was saying and these ministers were saying were two different things. And so if I'm wrong, then a lot of my life has to change. But if I ignore this, then I don't have to. And I still got verse, but I, I would tell you that the abundant life that Jesus died to give you is not found in scriptures that are taken out of context and used for someone's benefit. It's reading the whole scripture. It's reading the whole paragraph, chapter, book, testament, whichever it is, to give you the proper understanding of who Jesus is to live the life that Christ died to give you. I believe that, that Christ came to give us life and life more abundantly. And I find that there have been times of great financial abundance and there have been times of great uh, abundance in needing. I'm not saying that God was lacking. He always came through. But there are times where like, you had just enough to pay for all the things and really hoping the money comes in next week too. I've seen, I've seen life lived where it seemingly was carefree and there wasn't – your biggest problem was that, you know, there was a presidential uh, address on TV and you couldn't watch your favorite program. That was the biggest problem of your day. And I've seen you know, people who have died in the hospital. I've watched my son die. I've, seen, I've been there days where people were diagnosed with cancer. And it's like that's abundant life still because God will use that according to his will for the good of those who love him. And that brings us back to hope. Where is your hope? When your hope is in Christ – and these, all these other things go into their proper place. 
I don't have his money, but I have my hope in Jesus. I don't I'm sick right now, but I have my hope in Jesus. I uh like two months ago was diagnosed with diabetes. Or diabetes, as I like to pronounce it. I'm uh Wilfred Brimlian, and I like to pronounce it that way. And uh, you know, it sucks. Like how many people are any of you diabetic? I'm the only one. Perfect. It's the worst, not because like my life got altered all that much. I just can't seem to get my sugar down. It's like I drink a glass of ginger ale and take my blood sugar. Like, why won't it go down? Like, it's it's asinine. But my point is it's changed things about my life. And it's like, what am I going to do? You know, you see people who in their 60s and 70s go blind or lose a foot. Like, I don't want to end up like that. But I have to keep my hope in Jesus. Taking the meds, you know, trying to eat less sugar, doing the finger poke thing, but ultimately my hope is in Jesus. That no matter what's happening in my life, whether it's my health or my finances or my relationships or whatever, ultimately I am victorious because he is victorious and because he's in charge. And so that is the challenge for you. I can't I can't do that for you. I can't tell you this though, it's our job as the church to pray alongside with you. You know, I think about Moses with his hands up in in the desert during the battle. You know, he had to hold his hands up, but there was guys that came along and like used their hands to hold up his hands. We can be those guys for you sometimes. If the dropping of your arms, the worship of Jesus is 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 falling, then we'll come alongside you. We'll hold your hands up. You know, when my hands are falling, I know you guys have come and helped me. And that's church family. That's what we do. But we also have to realize that we're not perfect yet. And so there are things that we have to look at in our lives and be honest with ourselves and let the Lord have control and say, Lord, is this true or not true? If it's true, give me evidence. If it's not, give me evidence for that too. And purge these things from your life. Compromise is, is, is called out more in the Bible than most other, you know, things like adultery and things. It's generally compromise that causes the destruction of people. No, David, before he ever committed sin with Bathsheba, he compromised. He compromised his marriage. He compromised his kingdom. He compromised his faith. He compromised his relationship with the Lord. He compromised so many things before Bathsheba ever came to him or was brought to him, I should say. So let's pray. Let's stand. Let's pray. You know, I tried to preach as long as I could to keep us from going outside. That was basically all that was. No, I kid. I want to pray for you, though. I want you to look at your life, not like the positive thinker, oh, things are just going to turn out a-okay. I want you to say, you know what, this, this really hurts, and I know that I will survive it because the Lord is in me with it. That I am going through this valley of the shadow of death, walking alongside my Savior, in whom there is no shadow, in whom is only light. Jesus, we praise you today. And like I started off this sermon, we don't want just a transference of, of information, Lord. I mean, I can come up with three points and you know, this and that, and, and, and we can share information in that way. But Lord, but what we're seeking today is more than just information. 
We're seeking transformation. That we would look at our lives that you have led us to and not see you as absent, though it might feel that way. See you as the God who will never leave us nor forsake us. The God that goes before, the God who is behind, the God who, who walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. The God who, who became man, your word says, and, and knows what we are going through and was victorious through it. Father, may all of our hope turn back to Jesus. Not our job, not our economy, not the, the politician we want elected, not the, the government that we know is corrupt, not the, the 401k, not the, the car we drive or the area we live in, Lord. But may all of our confidence and all of our hope and all of our faith be put back into Jesus. That no matter what should befall us, Lord, we would stand, not because we're powerful, but because you are powerful. Your word says that in our weakness, that is where your true strength shines. That is where we see your strength clearer than at any other time. And so, Father, I'm praying that in our weakness now, we would see that strength. That you would challenge us and cause us to change. That you would give us the ability and the privilege to repent that if there are compromises in our lives, we would, we would forsake those, even if it hurts, Lord. And ultimately, that Jesus would be lifted up in our lives. And we'd be a disciple of you. And we'd be used to make disciples of others. That, that we would combat heresy by remembering that Jesus is first and foremost the, the preeminent one. The same yesterday, today, and forever, who is and was and is to come. And we wait, Lord, in, in the best way possible that anxiously could be used, Lord. We anxiously await the return of your son, Jesus, to be with you forever and all of eternity. We give you the praise, the honor, and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.